This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and bunkmate. It's Hank. Eat shit and live, buddy. In the spirit of Death by DVD, as we do every year, we uh, do things completely out of whack, and we're doing a summer camp movie series in August when everybody is going back to the slaughterhouses that we call the American school system. That's still, I mean, there could be some late summer camps just like Arawak, because Sleepaway Camp begins in fucking autumn. I think all three of the movies are filmed in the middle of autumn. It's not a summer camp movie at all. It's a bold-faced lie. It's worse than The Burning. I mean, The Burning at least tries and hides it a little bit. And what's the one with Galen Ross that was filmed in the dead middle of winter? Oh, that's Madman. Yeah, but Madman. That that's is a like, bold-faced they lie. explain that off as being some, I don't even know how they explain it off. It's some sort of... It's, it's a, a special, special camp. camp. Yeah, it's it's a camp for it's not blind kids, but that would have been a lot funnier. Uh, but what what a great idea for a slasher movie, a camp slasher movie, nonetheless. Just somebody picking off innocent blind kids. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. <laughs> Where's the humor coming? I don't know. It just it sounds kind of funny to me. Um, we we will have a special camp movie at the end of this Sleepaway Camp Three because that's that's I don't know the the, the near and dearest one I think to your heart, your favorite Sleepaway Camp. Uh. No, not even close. My attempt at We sarcasm. got into a big argument this week about <laughs> Sleepaway Camp the series because I think that it's a standalone film and pretty much everything that came after the original Sleepaway Camp is kind of crap. And I'll stand by that. Uh, it probably has more to do with the personal feeling of slasher films being kind of dead by the, uh, the late 80s and what was the first uh, or the... Sleepaway Camp to Unhappy Campers. That's like 87, maybe yeah. 88. 88. And it's, well, it's all hair metal and it's all irreverent. And I'm not into irreverent slasher films. I'm well, not the into Dead Milkmen are on the soundtrack. So it's, it's a weird, whole, the whole vibe is very weird to part two. That, I'm not, I'm just not into that vibe where it's like, it's almost making fun of the genre. I think if you're going to make a slasher film, you might as well take it serious and I don't hate Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3, but they're just not high on my list. Like, a lot of other people think, oh, these are, like, even the superior ones. And I'm like, eh, they're like just too jokey, and the violence is not really... like the In the second one, the violence is a little bit better, like, envisioned. Uh, the third one, Jesus Christ. I know they didn't have a budget, but, I th- what, 30 to 40% of the deaths are getting beaten by a stick. Um, and the first one actually has, like... It has a slasher film tone and a vibe to it, and the other two just kind of, eh, they just feel a little cheap to me and not really well realized at all. Well, I will give you absolutely all of that, but oddly use it in the defense of those films. But again, what you just uh, made very clear is 
it, it's your taste. It's something that you want. You take a little bit more serious. And one of the reasons I appreciate and really enjoy the Sleepaway Camp sequels is because they are so poorly written and loose and ridiculous. I'm especially fond of Sleepaway Camp Two. I will always give in agreement that Part Three is um, garbage. It's just, uh, but I still I'll watch it three times in a row if you want to. It's it's. I don't know. It's fun. I hate using that as a term when you're trying to actually discuss something, but there is just a, a dumb level with both of those movies that I can sit down and zone out and put down my phone and laugh Beavis and Butthead style the whole way through, especially with part three. I mean, it, it, with even some ignorant deaths like the stick scene, which is monotonous and continues on. But again, it's just a weird experience. The whole thing is a, is a really weird ride. Well, by far, I'd say probably the worst of all the sequels is return to sleep away cam. I am just not a fan of that movie. It was it 2005. I think they shot it maybe 2003. Is it because your ass stinks? Oh God. Uh, we'll get into that one and all the things I find despicable about, it. but probably the worst out of all of them is Sleepaway Camp Survivor, which is not even really a Sleepaway Camp movie. It's about 20 minutes of footage. That it was going to be. I mean, it really, it's not like it was a fan Oh, it was film, crap, but... though. Even the footage they shot is crap. Oh, agreed. It was a, just a complete and utter cash-in on on just a title alone, because the footage they shot, it was mostly just two people. Return and to Sleepaway Camp came out in 2008, but I can't vouch for when it was shot. So It was shot in like 2005. It took years for it to actually get finished and come out. Uh, so it was like two or 2003 or 2005, one of the two. The only credit I'll give for um, Survivor as its own movie and individual thing is it was going to be a follow-up through the same production company and was going to be an actual movie, but the company went bankrupt not even midway through filming like they had 20 solid minutes or so and whatever was edited by the uh, the sleepawaycampfilms.com guys used to be available on Amazon and featured flashback sequences allowing you to kind of get a coherent ish story and plot to uh, to what the whole thing the experience was supposed to be but it's still pretty much in agreement with you i don't think it's really canon or something that we got to talk about anymore outside of what we just did what well, reminds me of like Uligo mel's uh was a return of the boogeyman and also yeah. um kind of like silent night deadly night 2 with that one actually they shot a good amount of footage to excuse the fact that they were using you know just like a lot of clips and i understand they weren't going to originally use clips um to yeah. finish this out they're going to shoot a whole movie but they didn't even like they they had like two actors like they were just get, let's just get some footage in the can and i think it was title alone and in reality the per the person playing angela this time doesn't feel like angela it feels like the uh it's probably the character that's closest related to the uh the um artwork for uh, teenage Waste wasteland though one of the that's... things i really think is attractive and I'll, I'll give up to why i possibly like sleepaway camp two and three so much is being uh, younger at video stores and being able to gawk at the hot chicks that never show up in the movie on the cover of those two <laughs> no i mean it's just like yeah it's, it's very very messy but let's just go ahead and get into sleepaway camp one the first one by robert hilchick and Yes, this movie is a classic camp slasher. It's one of the best. It is probably one that people talk about more than any of the camp slashers. And it has a lot to do with the, the shock ending. And I'll admit, as seeing as a child, it is a very shocking ending. But it also is it's a very dark film. And mostly due to the fact that 
it's a summer camp film where it's not a bunch of people in their mid twenties and late thirties playing campers and shit. It's actually like children being killed, teenagers, even younger than teenagers. So it feels like an actual summer camp and like the, the violence seems extreme in it to a certain extent. And for me, like it wasn't the absolute ending of the film that felt shocking to me as much as all the deaths felt shocking to me that they were going to go, this brutal to some of the uh, the characters who were probably like 16, 17, 14 even, and just to have them have the most brutal deaths imaginable that are in the first film. Um, and again, the ending, though, is rather shocking. The first time you see it, it's just like, well, holy shit. And to me, it wasn't so much the dick that was the shocking part, that, oh, this person ha- has been, uh, has been a-, a man all along, or a boy, I guess. Um... That's not Angela's the shocking a part. boy. He's a boy. Um, it's the reaction that Angela has while standing up, and also the fact that uh, Paul is uh, decapitated, because I never thought that they would kill the character of Paul off, and yeah, he gets decapitated. Angela stands up and is making that horrible hissing sound, and just like it all just kind of comes over you in a wave of like, I don't know what I'm witnessing here. I don't know what the fuck is going on. It's just that it's so much external stimulus to take in all at once. And that's the thing about Sleepaway Camp, the original, that works the best. And overall, just the 80s nature of it, because in the 1980s, there were a lot of summer camp films like Meatballs, uh, Meatballs 2. I wouldn't consider Meatballs 3 one of those, but um, there was a lot of like uh, direct uh, like TV movies and direct-to-video movies that are like summer camp films like this. And it feels like one of those films. And to make it a rated R horror element thing like it is, um, it really like meshes in with all of those and becomes its own thing. So I think it's it's a shocking film even to this day. I think one of the things that always stood out the most for Sleepaway Camp, uh, especially when you enter it for the first time, is how you don't know what's happening. And as you see it progressively throughout the years, I find myself every time I, I revisit the movie just wishing for like an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind moment that I didn't know what was going to happen because it's set up so perfectly. And you know, when you don't, when you've not been exposed to it, when you don't know how sleepaway camp ends horse cock or not there, it's just mystifying because you're really led to believe that it's Ricky throughout the entirety of the movie. And you have that, you know, insurance, that vibe, like, you know, what's going to happen. And you know, there's restorations now where it really is kind of clear how they filmed the movie. Which it's gives... very clear. It's Ricky in one scene. In yeah, a wig. You can, I believe it's the uh, the the infamous hair curler scene, and you can really straight up tell that it's Jonathan Tiersten uh, is is committing these kills. But you know, whatever. You kind of get you got to go find an older copy of this if you're going to show somebody Sleepaway Camp, I suppose, for the first time. But just being able to to go back and watch it, 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 it it's it's. Uh, being able to go back and watch it, I think some of the fun is always constantly ruined when you know what's happened. But at the same time, just being able to relive the moments and realize, you know, oh, man, I remember when I saw this for the first time and I never realized this, this, this or this. Or you go through and you re- remember how horrifying some of the kills are and just incredibly grotesque when the cook is absolutely burned almost to death. It's just postulating an awful, grotesque gore. You've got the bee death, one of my favorites, where you only the only bit of gore you get is the kid's arm falling out, but it's just swollen and red and nasty, you know, like what Macaulay Culkin would have looked like in My Girl if they'd have actually shown all the good parts. And you've just, like, the knife scene straight to the back. You have such 
just grade A perfect slasher material here. And it's like you can go through any list, but I, I really think Sleepaway Camp is one of the strongest contenders for a, a near-perfect slasher movie. You've got everything, not even giallo S. you've got like a, a ridiculously hard game of Clue and then the character Mel, which what every slasher needed is a Mel. <laughs> I mean, I, I love Mike Cullen. Uh, he, I think he passed away before the movie was even released, like three or four months before the movie came out. But one hell of a performance, the cigar-chomping, cigar very um, Mag, inappropriate. To kill Meg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, first of all, what is Meg doing? Why does she want to fuck crusty old Mel with his like black socks and his docker shorts and yeah, slip on? What about I, those ball length docker shorts and old man hat got her, you know, just happy and ready to go? I don't know. We can't uh, we can't kink shame anyone, but there is something. And really she's <laughs> but she's the aggressor in it. Like Mel isn't even like as far as I know, hasn't groomed her in any way. She's the one who's like, hey, Mel. You want to come get some of this? I'm like, uh, that's weird. Um, but probably the, the whole best part about his weird. performance, though, is when he goes after Ricky later and with his like UGG gorilla like strength. Well, which time? Because you've got the time where, where they're throwing Angela into the lake and he grabs him and starts yelling at him and uh, somebody finally comes and breaks up the whole issue between them. But then you've got the really great scene on the archery range where he is just like pummeling the living, loving shit out of this child. Just And I think uh, Jonathan Tierson was like 17, 16 while this was being filmed. But at the same time, uh, Mike Kellen was in his 50s, 60s. And just it's it's hysterical. He is just beating the hell out of that kid. I don't know what's funny about that to me. That, that opens up some weird doors, but I've always thought it uh, to be quite humorous. Sorry. Uh, I think overall though that Sleepaway Camp is a special slasher film because you do have stuff like Friday 13th you do have a lot of the other like camp slashers even up to Madman uh, Madman, where you had uh, you do have children involved but the children are never involved in any of the deaths and in Sleepaway Camp you literally have Angela hatcheting a bunch of like 8-year-old kids to death in their sleeping bags. That's the only one that really gets to me because up until that point if that if that had been omitted and that wasn't part of the movie you really could have a lot of sympathy for Angela um the the character in general because of what this person has gone through to get to the point they're at which in so many slasher movies we get an unnecessary backstory and the way it's handled with Sleepaway Camp I think is it's a little tricky, but it's it's pretty clever. And well, once the backstory it... works, but in retrospect, the backstory is incredibly problematic to this day. <laughs> Definitely, of possibly what's made Angela what Angela is. I mean, with the ant character being who she is, that as a catalyst somewhat works, especially with the uh, the way the actress portrays the character of just being batshit fucking insane. But, like, at the beginning, though, with the, um, the possibility Gould. of, like, the gay father confusing her sexually or confusing him sexually, confusing Peter sexually, like, that's that's a little old-timey and not very um, PC to this day. Um, I think the worst scene the would overall... be where they're pointing at each other, where the two children in that spinning bed frame, and you, you kind of get that allowance. Because at the beginning of the movie, you, you understand that there's something going on, but when you get that snippet at the end, I think that's probably the most inappropriate sequence is, you know, just what you're going into of the, the, the boy being confused by whatever he may or may not have seen with his father. Yeah, see, that's a that's that's a problematic thing in the film, especially to something like the LGBTQ community, to where it's 
especially in the 70s and early 80s, there was this kind of a push in media that being gay was like problematic. You're going to confuse your children. You can't have gay parents. It's going to sexually confuse them. And in retrospect, that is completely out of date. The like, Bible said that, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, that kind of shit is like it's patently fucking ridiculous. Now, if you eliminate that and you have the uh, Aunt Martha character being who she is, possibly confusing Peter's, um, I wouldn't even say sexuality, because it's not even like Angela is particularly like a trans character. Although, again, in retrospect, you can it can be viewed as that because it's something that's been pushed on to Peter. It's not a choice that he has made. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't have gender dysphoria at all, and he's no, he's been forced into it. So I would say that's a problem with Robert Hilchick's story overall, because this is a complete misunderstanding. Uh, again, a lot of it has to do with the time period. Um, psychology has since like made leaps and bounds into the subject matter and to explain it away a little, uh, explain it away better to where it's not this like hopeless problem that uh, is like oh this is how you this is how you become trans no that's not how you become trans that's it's completely like irrelevant it's to throw it all together though like it is it does seem problematic in today's time and date now uh th i'm just i guess speaking freely here so i'm not attempting to defend uh sleepaway camp or any of the things you just brought up but I think possibly the design of uh, Peter, a.k.a. Angela, could have been a notion to give you more sympathy in general to the character so you could actually feel something outside of your general atypical slashers of the time and the characters. I mean, even something like Friday the 13th, it turns out it's Mrs. Voorhees, and then she gets her head cut off and the movie's over. There's really nothing you kind of feel bad for her, I guess, but hey, she should have been watching Jason better. You know, don't just blame the teenagers. It's not always the kid's fault, man. So with Angela and the whole design, you, you get like an allowance here of like, well, that's really fucked up because, and this is just m my opinion, Angela, Peter never really had a, a thought of it. You know, when you're at a certain age, I don't think that where the movie's direction was pointing to that, you know, it was a whole, uh, well, Angela is transgender. I don't think that that really was a focal point, that it was more or less Angela was forced into, or Peter was forced into becoming Angela on the the, the nose of a really crazy aunt. That, I mean, you, you Desiree Gould's performance makes it seem like she's incredibly unstable. You're allowed to know she's a doctor. So I think it's more of a, a, a typical horror mad scientist plot that I've always wanted a daughter, so this is what we're going to do. And then Angela, Peter, eventually snaps under the pressure of what's going on at camp. And rightfully so. I'm not going to... Uh, say the greatest thing to do is 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 acts of violence. I don't uh, think violence is any way to handle a situation. But some of those kids were just shitheads. You know, some of them had to go. They were really rude to her, and uh, I just can't stand rude people. Oh yeah, fuck <laughs> kids because they're assholes. But I just did Joe. This is it's not really our place to determine if this is correct yeah. or incorrect as far as these issues go. These are just our opinions on. And you really need to talk to somebody who's in the trans community to find out what their opinions are on how this character is treated. Because to turn them into a murderer because of, of this sort of issue is just like, that's a little beyond the pale. But again, it did give one of the best shock endings to a slasher film of the 1980s. 
So it's all kind of just a mess right now more than anything. So if you really want to know someone's opinion, ask someone who's trans and what their opinion of sleepaway camp is, if they find it problematic, because it's not really our place to say how problematic it is or it isn't. I really doubt a lot of thought was put into the entire process when this movie was coming into, into fruition and it was being created. You know, I don't think anybody's thoughts or rights or individuality was, was a focal point outside of, well, it's a good idea and we're just going to run with it. And so many years later, thankfully, you come into a light and come into a situation where you can look back on things and you can reestablish point of views or look at people that could have been affected by them. But for the long run, I don't think Sleepaway Camp had any intentions of hurting anyone's feelings except maybe uh, you know audience members that they wanted to shock and scare in its entirety. You know, I don't think it's against any specific part of a community. No, I don't think it's purposefully against any sort of community, but it can have that read um, depending on where you're coming at it, like politically or sociologically, how you're coming at it. But again, ask somebody who actually deals with these issues of what they feel about it, not a bunch of cis white males who run a horror movie podcast. But that just being said, because you kind of, I mean, it's an elephant in the room type situation. You do have to address some of these these issues as they I think uh, they moving into up, the uh, sequel, we're going to end up having, I mean, th- I think it's a good segue into Sleepaway Camp 2 in general because it's it's brought up even more, and I think it becomes a little bit more problematic with what they assess the situation. Or it's, it's a statement Angela makes, but I think in the long run, it's kind of a really awkward statement when she talks about, I guess, I don't... I don't want to fuck up pronouns here, but we're just, I guess Angela is she by the time it's part two. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, she's had the, she's had gender reassignment surgery at this point. And as far as I know, that was her choice. And you seem to think it was forced upon her. And I'm not, is that, do you feel that's stated in the film or not? Cause I, it's been a little bit since I've seen sleep away camp Two, like really, really sat down and watched it. That's where I'm a little curious with the situation because she explains to the uh, the cop's son, or I guess we get the cop in part three. She explains to a character later on in the movie that she's fine and that she's had electroshock treatment and years and years of therapy and then adds in, I've even had gender reassignment surgery. So I took it that all of this was part of, you know, quote unquote, therapy and that it was sort of a bash toward the you know pray the gay away we can use science to make you not gay anymore and i I might have been just reading a bit too deep into it because again as we established at the beginning of the show part two is where it starts to get silly part three it's hopeless and i i mean i really could be reading into it a bit too much well i mean again it's there to be read into because it's just kind of brought up by uh, the, the cop's son of like, well, she, she had the, the surgery and Peter is now Angela and she's a, but also um, the writer Fritz <laughs> quote unquote um, put in that she's a trans lesbian almost in the second one because she enjoys being around the company of women. So I guess she's figured out her sexuality in this one, I, I'm not sure because it's never really like thrown out there, but she does seem a little bit more comfortable around the girls. She doesn't really like any of the, the boys and this, and she really distanced herself from them at, at all costs and pretty much just murders them. But she she's an equal opportunist murderer. She does kill men and women in this. It's not like she just has a special affinity for them, but she does look a little bit more comfortable hanging out with the, with the girls uh, in this film. 
Well, Sleepaway Camp 2 Unhappy Campers sets up uh, an unfortunately short-lived theme, but something I really, really enjoy in the series is why Angela is killing people. Angela only likes to kill rude campers, which takes us even back to therapy and is something that, I don't know, I just I read into things maybe a little bit too much, but... So all of these awful things happen to Angela at camp, and she goes to therapy and has ECT and reassignment surgery and all of this stuff happens that her therapy has pushed her to a point that all she cares about is the best camp experience ever and people being really good campers. And that's all Angela seems to care about now. Which is, is weird to me yeah. that that's the direction they went really into. Really weird. <laughs> Angela fucking hated camp in the first one. And not only did she hate camp, um, she didn't kill people because they were like, sh- like sh- just shitty people. She killed people because they were like picking on her. Yeah, it's almost like an anti-bullying message. And by sleepaway camp too, she almost becomes the bully because, well, you talk too much, so I'm gonna fucking kill you. Hey, you're kind of annoying me, so I'm gonna kill you. So she's a little bit more of a bully character by the second ones, and it's it's just weird the interpretation they took from the first film and turned the character into this new style character of where she really likes camp and she just wants camp to be good for everyone. And you guys are all just taking away of how great camp can be. It's like, okay, that's, that's kind of a a different read on the characters. I, as I understand the character from the original Superboy camp anyway. See what I took from it. And I, I kind of figured in my head is that that's what Angela took from therapy is that, well, I had a really, really bad time. So if I try and recapture the moment and make it really good and make it perfect for everyone, there will never be a problem again. So the you know therapy obviously failed and has just created a horrible, horrible psychopath. And that's just uh, the the first movie. You know, I can't dictate and say, especially children, people deserve to die. But everyone she went after, except those kids that she hatcheted to death, you really can be sympathetic for her. Then you move into, as you just said, the bully syndrome. She picks people throughout um, the typical things in slashers. They're they're having sex. They're doing drugs. Two and one stone, which were totally wasted characters. Those stoner sister characters could have gone on for another 15 minutes and still managed to be mildly entertaining, but they fried them way too fast. And it's, it's, it's fun gore. You've got a lot of interesting deaths. You've got some exciting violent scenes. One of my favorites is the shithouse drowning, which is just awful. It doesn't matter that you don't see a lot. It's still fucking disgusting, and you get to imagine drowning in an outhouse. It's just horrifying, but everything's so quick. And it's just too snappy. It's moving into that era of the 80s where you, you, could, you could emphasize a lot, but you couldn't show a lot. And it just doesn't really hit it anywhere near as home as Sleepaway Camp. I think the more interesting things are like the intricacies with Angela and Pamela Springsteen's performance of how much at the beginning of the movie, especially she replicates Desiree Gould and does the little uh, hand to chin movements and. She references her aunt a little bit more, so you've got a like a connection that this is a, a character that she still cares about for some reason. Ricky's been omitted at this point, but it, they they tried. There was a little subtle subtlety, and there was some subtle nuances in general to Sleepaway Camp Two that connects it, and I can get past the comedy. But when you move into Part Three and transition there, it's just too silly. I still like it; it's just not connected well, the- to me. <laughs> That's also a bit of my problem with Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3 because by the late 80s, that's where the intellectuals got involved with slasher films. And they seem to take this idea that most killers are puritanical in slasher films. And I've never seen it as that because the slasher isn't killing people because they're having sex or because they gave up their virginity or, or doing drugs or any of that. And most slasher films from the early 80s and late 70s, it's just 
the reason those things were thrown in is because that's what teenagers did. That wasn't like this puritanical message. But by the late eighties, like writers seem to kind of throw that in of like, well, they don't, if you have sex, you die. It's like, well, the reason they were having sex is just because they're teenagers. It has nothing to do with why they died. It's, I don't know why it took this kind of push. And then it got like exacerbated and stuff like scream and other things like, but Alice in Friday the 13th was fucking Steve. She wasn't a virgin at all. She wasn't a, like a virginal character. And Laurie Strode, like you can interpret her as a virginal character, but she was like going to get on Ben Tramer at some point. She smokes it some wasn't... grass. She gets high. Yeah. And she gets high. It's not like you smoke pot, you die. But it's what it became because people started like reading a little so bit dead. too much into these things. And really, the reason people were having sex is because we got to get nudity in this movie because we got to sell it. Well, too, you know, people have to die. You have to set up a kill. I, I, I can't speak much for modern slashers, but somebody sitting on their phone staring at Instagram isn't an interesting way to have a killer sneak up upon you. But when two people are fucking, yeah, that's a great way. I mean, just referencing Halloween again, I think one of the greatest fuck kill scenes is once they're done having sex, the whole ghost downstairs thing, and Michael strangles him and pins him up in the sheet. That's fucking horrifying. That's a really, really awesome kill that was accentuated because of the fuck scene. That helped it out. Something that, um, it's weird. I'm going to bring this up, I guess. I was watching the Joe Bob special for uh, Sleepaway Camp, and there's there was some complaints that there wasn't nudity in the movie, which baffled me a little bit because most of the cast is children. But um, it does directly change gears from the very first Sleepaway Camp, which there is assumed nudity. You know, characters, somebody dies in a shower, so obviously they uh, they weren't fully closed. But within the first five minutes of Sleepaway Camp 2, it's it's busty. I mean, it's tits-a-go-go. And that's, that, I think that itself... Not necessarily cheapens the series, but from the direction you had Sleepaway Camp in, turning it into just an obvious regular slasher. It becomes more exploitive it. by Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. It's very much more on the exploitation front, which I don't particularly have a problem with. But No, I love boobs. They're Sleepaway great. Camp 2 is almost nothing but an exploitation film. It is a name, a title, and then... It's that title is an excuse to do the exploitive things. The fucking cover of the movie was the biggest lie. I mean, I remember for years just walking past this wondering, like, what does this have to do with Jason and Freddy and hot chicks? This sounds like the greatest thing in the world. And then, of course, you finally get to age where you can find these or rent them without parent supervision. And it, you know, even the first time around. It has nothing to do with it whatsoever, kind of. I mean, they do. Those, the the glove and the mask do show. Well, that was up the cover. Film, you know, but... you had that really hot chick in short shorts with the Jason mask on her backpack and the Freddy glove on her backpack. So it gave you this illusion that there was going to be some crossover or a wonderful, horrifying angle betwixt all these things. There absolutely fucking was not. No, it's an advertising angle because even in the uh, early '90s, they um, had this rash of killer kid movies like Mikey and Milo, and they all had almost the exact same um, tagline on the the cover art, which was, remember, Jason and Freddy were once kids, too. Uh, and it was always just like trying to, to reappropriate those famous killer slashers into your movie of like, well, we're just as hardcore as those. You like those films. And it's just it's another exploitation angle, exploitation of the genre in itself, which is inevitably what horror became in the 90s which was exploiting horror films as horror films not just exploitation within the horror film which is an incredibly meta thought but i mean that's really what it became it's just for the video market it was to give teens something to rent we know what we're doing 
we know what we're, we're trying to sell. So here, here's all the things that you want. You like this, right? You, you need this, this, and the, these components. And that's, again, one of my big problems with something like Scream. Scream in itself is an okay film. It's not the problem I have with Scream. What people think about Scream, like it, it was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking because it made a bunch of money more than anything because the thoughts in it had been, it was just an echo of the thought because those thoughts have been made in the 80s. There, like, uh, there's a movie called Evil Laugh that was po poking fun at slasher films. There was a segment in a uh, somewhat anthology comedy film called uh, Viewer Discretion Advised that was poking fun at slasher films and established rules like Scream did. So Scream wasn't as particularly groundbreaking as people seem to think it was. It was just the most popular of those. Student Bodies is another prime example. Um, it's the reminiscent era. It's people that were fond of it, and it was something that had an impact to them at the time. So I, I understand. Where a lot of people were in high school when they saw it, so it was a big yeah. deal to them. But that something like Scream cemented that, though, into the horror community of, like, this is what a slasher film is. It's like, well, those rules aren't really rules. Those are kind of made-up bullshit things. Those aren't really in everything. The reason those things started showing up is because people started to believe, mostly producers started to believe that's what a horror or slasher film needed to have in it. And it really didn't. All, like, slasher films were kind of had a variety back in the day. It just so happened to have some of these elements in it didn't have to have these elements. If you were a virgin, you didn't have to be the final girl. But at this point in history, it's now canon. Your final girl has to be this almost this virginal style character. And it's just I I think it kind of limits a little bit um, where you can take a film. You, uh, we need to break out of this kind of typecasting of characters and slasher film. I think that's exactly some of the major problems with Sleepaway Camp, too. That although the ride and the experience is fun and the violence that you're given is a pretty fun ride and in total it's not a horrible experience but it just lacks any absolute depth. So when you are going from Sleepaway Camp and you traverse into Sleepaway Camp 2 it's like a, a bad taste is left in your, your mouth. Especially with what you're describing and what you want out of a slasher movie when you're going into something that is almost lawless and has more like sleepaway camp. I wouldn't say is necessarily. Lawless, I don't want but... rules. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Stop trying to hit me with rules. Well, I mean, it's not that sleepaway camp is completely lawless, but when she kills the children or when Angela Peter kills the children and just hatchets them absolutely to death, you are at a point of disbelief. You know, at this point that anything's on the table when you traverse into the sequel, it's only for a reason, as we brought up earlier, that Angela just goes after bad campers and people that are making the entire experience of camping somewhat lame, which I guess we can use as a reference with producers that you were bringing up that consistently have this idea of, well, this is how you make a slasher movie, this is how it has to be made. Because going into part three, it just follows that to a more psychotic point, to a more senseless point, but... At least with Sleepaway Camp 2, you have a frame of enjoyment. It is cheap. It's nowhere near as cheap as the next one. But you can kind of enjoy it. There's some funny nuances. Everyone's named after somebody that was famous in the 80s. Uh, you get to see Rene Estevez, if you're a Rene Estevez fan, or a fan of two sisters. You know, Pamela Springsteen, Rene Estevez, maybe that's your your bag. And you get off on And it's not like I find Sleepaway Camp 2 completely joyless either. I do find some enjoyment in the film. It's just I can't look at it as like any sort of groundbreaking film or anything that's like, Oh wow, this is, this one's special. And it just doesn't feel special to me. It feels like a product. And 
even more so with uh, Teenage Wasteland, Sleepaway Camp 3, that definitely feels like a product. And they were See, shot I guess back that's to the, back. That's the problem, I guess, between both of us is I don't always mind a product. Like, sure, I want some artistic integrity or some great deep you know idea like midsummer and things like hereditary that's that's fine and great but for what it is i can sit down and be pretty entertained with sleepaway camp too i i, I really it, i can't yeah, cross it's not lines joyless. you know yeah i mean but i just sometimes don't mind the fucking product i i know that it wasn't made for any other purpose outside of pretty much poster art and trying to get people to rent movies i know it's video market bullshit but i, I just have some enjoyment for a garbage i <laughs> i can't defend it any much more but i when we move into sleepaway camp 3 i i don't have as much solidarity with the series anymore i don't think there's going to be as much uh defense and two i it wasn't something that i initially liked i've always been very very fond of sleepaway camp and um you know when we had initially done it years ago uh got in like 2009 it was one of the very first episodes of death by dvd that's where a lot of our fan base came from and a lot of people that have stuck around to this day just just fell in love with that episode and hadn't really heard of the movie, and it's it's hard to believe back then it was still kind of in the dust, that people talk about it being lost, even though Joe Bob had shown it in the, the late 80s, early 90s on, um, I think, the movie channel. When he, uh, I don't remember what show that was, but regardless, it has still existed and been around. It got a resurgence in the early 2000s or so, and we did our initial episode about it, and it was just kind of weird to have seen something and been aware of that it there was so a world long. that where sleepaway camp was like an oddity yeah kind of was... a lost slasher film and now it's like the, the pinnacle of the slasher genre which i'm all for because yeah, i've just love been sleepaway in 11 camp. short years how the time has changed so much for this movie to you know you who, who would have known outside of the guy from cky who the fuck felissa rose was so many years ago, and now she literally is a horror household icon and name, which is great. I love Felissa Rose. It's, <laughs> she deserves her dues, as everyone in this movie does. But yeah, she disappeared just, for years. It's weird, and then and now it's popped back up as being this like a, a horror icon, which is again much deserved. Um, and like what made Sleepaway Camp special for me is the original was just so shocking and just it felt just so kind of hardcore. And like it was breaking a lot of boundaries, which I mean, it it does in a lot of ways. And when you're like maybe 10 years old and you catch on HBO at three in the morning, it's just like, well, holy shit, what the fuck did I just see? And like when you get to something like Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3, it's boilerplate. It just I don't think it would bring anyone over to the horror genre. It's what my mom envisions as what a slasher film is. Yet yeah, it has this, it has this, it has this, and it has this. Um, so, and but like, it has all the wrong time, things to, to bring somebody into the scene, if you want to call it that or whatever, that it's got all the media pumps, that it's got nudity, blood, violence, drugs, foul language, but none of the actual aspects and, and things that make you fall in love with It has the heart, really. That's where I'm missing it. I, I need that heart. I need, because Robert Hilchick, obviously, no matter what he was trying to say with Sleepaway Camp, he had something to say, and he, like, it was a passion project, and... Sleepaway Camp 2, maybe a little bit of passion. And by Sleepaway Camp 3, though, there's no passion in that whatsoever. That was literally like, we've got some shelf space to fill, so let's fill that shit. I mean, the, the murders are not, like, there's one good murder in it, and that's the lawnmower death. That's like, that's And you don't pretty, even see blood. That's a pretty exciting murder in that film. Um, but, like, so, so many of them, I understand budgetary-wise, you couldn't have a lot of special effects, but at the same time, beating someone to death with a stick is fucking lame. 
Um, yeah, a waste of Michael J. Pollard as a character actor. Just a, an absolute I can't believe waste. What, okay, let's talk about this, though. In the Sleepaway Camp series, what is it with hot young women wanting to fuck creepy old weird-looking dudes? One of the one themes that they decided to keep through the entire series was that. They dismiss and throw away so many other poignant things. Like, there's a scene in Sleepaway Camp 3 that annoys the living hell out of me because you've got a character that's almost just like Paul from the first movie, and he comes up behind Angela and surprises her and puts his hands over his eyes, and she doesn't say... Burt Reynolds, it, it pisses me off every goddamn time I watch it. And, and it's just dumb shit that somebody could have been watching. Now, of course, I'm nitpicking way too much. But this movie ended up being, like, greenlit and prepared with, with, like, a week's time to do. They finished filming Sleepaway Camp 2. They filmed this at the same location, like a, a YMCA boys camp in Georgia, and just shot it out immediately. Uh, they And it's like, you read the IMDB, and it's, like, it's hysterical to me because the girls' camp, and part three is the same from part two. They just redressed it. <laughs> they didn't even really do that. Like, you don't need the IMDb trivia to tell that this is the exact same place. But that adds a weird amount of charm to part two and three that I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like watching, like, a, a bad Don Knotts movie that it's just the same locations. Nothing's different. Angela really is kind of become, like, an overactive Barney Fife-ish Punisher you know, that she's got her one bullet and is going to carry out justice to whomever comes around. And it's just overly erratic. Some of the choices she makes, like in part three, you've got the um, American flag, well, flagpole deaths. Don't want to country the flag, but you've got the flagpole death. And it's just like, why? What's the point of any of this? Because and it's not nice. even possible. How the fuck is she hoisting that chick up? That is not humanly possible. <laughs> It's a cool theory, and that's a lot of the problems with part three. But yeah, like Michael J. Pollard's character, I think, was supposed to be stabbed in the dick with a hot fire poker, but instead he just gets bludgeoned with a stick for, like, a while. Like, two or three minutes. It goes on. Yeah, at least in, at least in part two, all the deaths uh, seem to resonate somewhat with the character. Like, um, you're a shitty camper, so I'm going to drown you in the shitter. Uh, so you talk good. too much. I'm going to cut out your tongue. That you, like, you have all these different, like, deaths that somehow relate to the character that she's getting ready to kill. And by the third one, for mostly budgetary concerns... They just end up getting off because we've got a fucking quota to fill. And like the, the cop character, this is like, oh, I've been stalking you forever. I want you, Angela. I want to kill you. You kill my son. All right, I'm going to shoot you. Done. It's like, wow, that's anticlimactic. Well, again, bringing up, for some reason, they can keep the continuity with younger chicks getting it on with creepy, greasy old men. But they can't keep down the fact that in the sequel, this cop said that his dad was one of the arresting officers. So how the fuck did he not recognize who Angela was? I mean, I get it. I get that she had gender reassignment surgery. She's wearing a wig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a little bit too on the nose with its goof level because he arrested Angela, has been hunting down the killer of his son, but volunteers to help out because we haven't even talked about what this movie's about because by far, Sleepaway Camp and Sleepaway Camp 2 is pretty easy. People go to camp. They die at camp. There's a killer at the camp. But this is a special one. This isn't just going to camp. Apparently, 19 days after all the horrific murders in part two, they've cleaned out the camp and reopened it for uh, very wealthy children and then inner city children, which, again, we get into some problematic territory with what this film's idea of inner city, non-wealthy, uh, free income housing children are. Because most of them aren't white people, and that kind of is pointing the finger in a really bad direction. Yeah, I mean, you got Snowboy, 
Yeah, I'm he's sorry. He's your white fucking. They had to even bug, like name him. You know, here's Snowboy. He's the whitest one of them all. There is a lot of racial, um, just a, a, a weird amount of negative racial language. But in this at movie. least they do paint most of the upper crust white kids as being racist pieces of shit. You have the the, the um, you have like the what the the was his Dan Getz is that that fucking senator's name that piece of shit um like the, like uh the Jimmy Dean spokesman um who shows up and gets his arms ripped off by the jeep he wants to run for the senate. And he's just like a piece of shit, racist, uh, rapist motherfucker. So it's pretty apt of being reality on that one. Well, he wasn't so much the racist. It was the uh, the little white girl. Oh, she's racist. Yeah, no, he's racist, too. I mean, he's talking about, I like movies that are about America, like Rambo. Rambo 3, specifically. That yeah. that was the funny part, that it was Rambo Where Rambo 3. creates the fucking Taliban. Gotcha. Yeah. So, there again, there is some weird writing to kind of dig into with this, that there is, like, a, a sarcastic mad TV level of things. I wonder why. I, I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe because Michael fucking Hitchcock actually wrote these movies, who was a long-term writer and producer of Mad TV. Uh, he's not credited at all, so maybe it's hearsay, and it is kind of weird you'd want to keep these omitted from your records, but I'm pretty sure Michael Hitchcock was the writer for these films, and it does make sense with some of the humor. Now, the the, the Senator White Guy character, some of his dialogue is really funny, that they're they're fishing on the dock together, and it's like, Angela, I just like being tied up next to you, and that's what eventually leads to his death with, again, a really hysterical scene that Angela's got him tied to a tree. Why aren't you going to take my clothes off first? Tying him to a fucking Jeep doesn't care. You know, I don't really want to get in trouble if the wrong people hear about this. I might not be able to get elected. And it's just, it, it's inappropriate humor for what's going on, definitely, because you're trying to make Still the audience. Still laugh for today, though. Well, you're trying to make the audience laugh while presenting them with these really, really horrific deaths. And you're doing it at a slapstick kind of national lampoons level. So you get confused when you transition because part two has. A, a, a good layer of comedy, and you can laugh at a lot of the deaths, but when you get into part three, just with the amount of one-liners and jokes that everyone delivers either before or after or during their deaths, especially Angela, like, it's a good thing you died. Your breasts were going to be sagging if you lived any longer. It's just so much shtick. It's layered on, and it just gets a little tiring, you know, because you're not getting a payoff. You get somebody beaten to death with the stick, a bunch of boobs, and then a bad joke. Uh, you know, Cinemax did the same thing for a while. Well, both these films were released like right on top of each other too. It wasn't like there was a year in between them or two years. So most, I think most people probably rented them on top of each other and watched them on top. And it's kind of a hard sit to watch Sleepaway Camp two and three like back to back. It's not one of those great double features. It's kind of like by about twenty to thirty minutes into Sleepaway Camp three, it's just like fuck, this was a mistake. Why am I watching both these together? Because it just like all the problems that were in Sleepaway Camp 2 have been amplified by Sleepaway Camp 3 budgetary problems, writing problems, acting problems. And it really does feel like not as many people really cared. Like, we're really trying to put in good, solid performances. Angela Springsteen looks, not Angela Springsteen, Pamela Springsteen <laughs> playing Angela. She looks just kind of tired the whole movie. Like, eh, I'm kind of done playing this character, and I just kind of want to get this over with. And it just doesn't look like anybody's having as much fun as they were in the second one. And that's another problem I have with part three is just it looks – it just looks tired. It looks like it doesn't really care to be a film or to be like, you know, actually be a finished film. It just looks like, well, you got to get this over with. 
Let's do it. Here you go. Beat him with a stick. There's your murder. Move on. Next scene. Okay. We're going to hoist this chick up a flagpole. We're going to drop her dead next scene. And just like, there's not, there's not much connective tissue in between. Uh, you do have the love story between Tracy Griffith and the, uh, the dude with the, uh, the weird hair. I don't know what the fuck is going on. That dude's uh, the quaff, but Bandana I do enjoy the, the arc of their story though, where, uh, he falls in love with this pretty white girl and he's from the inner city. He's just like, and he totally gets like all cucked by her. And it's just like, man, but we had sex and it's just like, I, I think I'm in love with you. No, I got a boyfriend. You think I don't have a boyfriend? And I've never had sex before. I'm not as pure as you think I am, which is kind of, you know, a little bit of thumbing its nose at the, uh, the slasher genre of the, of the era. So, I mean, there's a little bit of that in there, but overall though, especially when we get to the ending, um, it's just actually the ending of both of the films, Sleepaway Camp two and three. It's like they didn't know where to go, and they just kind of like flounder and end. Well, Sleepaway Camp two ends with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre ending. Possibly Renee Estevez lives, but in the next movie they give a body count, and if you count her character and everyone else that dies, it looks like she doesn't survive. <clears throat> so Angela just kills. And kills and kills. She's become a shark at this point. I do kind of disagree with being able to watch two and three back to back. I think you can do two and three as a double feature. But if you're trying to do one, two, and three, you're definitely going to burn yourself out once you get around 15 minutes into Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. Which especially sucks because out of all the movie's taglines, that's the greatest. That just is so evocative of just a cool, awesome, all these kids are going to die. It's going to be so metal. It's going to be so hardcore. Not at all. I mean, you do get a little bit of speed metal in the soundtrack, and a lot of people die, but nothing is even specifically gory. The uh, amazing lawnmower scene, there's no blood. I mean, it's cool. You you totally get the gist well, of it. Well, that was but... an MPAA thing, because they had to edit a bunch of the shit out of Sleepaway Camp 3, and I think on at least the Anchor Bay DVD, there is the uh, the edited gore shots. They're like, you know, they're rough. It's like a work print footage and all that. But it was supposed to be a lot more violent than it turned out. But again, they got hit by the ratings board. But at the same time, none of the deaths were still that great. They were just all sort of a little bland overall. It's one of the strange things, I guess, with the Sleepaway Camp series is from where you start and where you end, especially when you go to return to Sleepaway Camp, which is, Oof. I think, an even worse ending. I mean, if you just leave it at part three, there's some redeemability. At least there's a charm to it being the 80s still, and you can you can allow some things in your head. You know, you you can make some excuses as to why it turned out this way. You know, it's 30 years old at this point. They had a bad budget. It was filmed out in the middle of fucking nowhere in Georgia. Then you move into Return to Sleepaway Camp, and there's just a lot of... Um, Robert no... Hilchick's back, and it is a fucking mess of yeah, a there's movie. There's no First room for all... excuses. You really have to kind of point fingers at things being bad, but uh, there's just something about the entire legacy and the format of this series. No matter how bad and tacky Part 3 is, I'll always have a lot of re high regard and a lot of enjoyment for it in general. Just the, uh, the, the initial three sleepaway camps before we get into Return and return. whatnot. Oh, but with Return, probably the biggest problem you have is, A, trying to make it a whodunit again. Nobody cares. First of all, once they introduce the character of the cop with the fake nose and fake beard that's very obvious, you know that's Angela. You know who the killer is. I don't know why we're doing a like classic whodunit plot. That's problematic. 
Second bit that's problematic. Maybe this is, is where Kevin Smith got his whole shtick for the Walrus movie. I mean, oh because God. they're pretty similar. Uh, they're almost the same thing when you when you think about it. But and then you have the Angela replacement character of I don't remember the kid's name. He's the he's your, your ass stinks kid who's supposed to be like this. You know, oh, it's the kid that gets picked on, and maybe he's he's a piece of shit. He's a huge fucking bully. He needs to be picked on because fuck that kid. You don't maybe feel bad with a little bit of understanding. Maybe he wouldn't be such a huge piece of shit. But I don't know. He's like an asshole. Was it and Alan? I can't stand watching him the entire movie. Was it was Alan? Right, that was his name. It, it is Alan. Yeah, and he sucks. I fucking hate Alan. And you've got um, Paul D'Angelo comes back as Ronnie. Jonathan Tiersten comes back as Ricky. Obviously, we've got Angela's return. You got fucking Isaac Hayes as the chef, which I, I don't know. I mean, was I guess this was before his hardcore Scientology era where he quit having fun and they killed him off on South Park. Fucking Vincent Pastore, big pussy from the goddamn Sopranos is in it. It's it's bafflingly bad. And I haven't seen this. I pulled an I Alexander Nash here. I'm just relying on like 15-year-old facts. I haven't seen this since it was a commodity since it was announced there's a new sleepaway camp and usually you know i'm a little neurotic and i'll watch something two or three times and just just to see it just to figure out how it was shot because i like to do sort of things like that i really don't have any intention of watching sleepaway camp return to sleepaway camp no, again like like the murders, no offense you know there's an inventiveness to the murders that i do enjoy there's some interesting murders in it which like robert hilchick brought back I've, i find that interesting but like all plot trappings in it suck the plot of the movie sucks the character of alan sucks why the um, fuck is ronnie still working at summer camps i mean he's got to have something better to do like did you not have a bad enough experience in like 1982 that like you might not want to go back to the summer camp i want to make mel's dreams come true Way to go, Ronnie. You fucked it up. If you wanted to and make like, his dreams come true, you'd fuck a 14-year-old because that seemed like the only thing that Mel was interested in. So this entire sequel is just completely squandered. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know, it's just incredibly messy. Like, all the characters, I can't think of one character in the film that's not an asshole. Like, everybody's an asshole in it. There's not one person to root for it. Ronnie's the only nice so guy again. It's just Ronnie. Yeah, Ronnie's okay, but Ronnie's got, like, what, six, seven scenes in the entire movie? Yeah, as he did and in the original film, though. I mean, you really, none of the major counselors, you've got TC in uh, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, who's a pretty sturdy character that doesn't really even get enough screen time. I mean, definitely kind of a, a Jocko strongman, but you could have done something a little bit more. Most characters are wasted outside of Sleepaway, the, the initial film. Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest thing about Return to Sleepaway Camp is just, first of all, your money is on Felissa Rose. You should have just had her in it, man. You should have like dumped the whodunit plot and really had her like do some stuff in the movie as opposed to just kind of showing up at the end like she does. Because um, every other person in this film just is a chore to sit through. Dude, there's like, a character just named Weed, for Christ's sakes. That's his name, Weed. That's it. He smokes weed, and then he gets blown up, because that's something that happens. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it's hard to sit through a bunch of shitty characters. And the first movie, you could say, has a bunch of shitty characters in it as well. But you root for Angela. You root for Paul in the first one. Uh, to a certain extent, you root for Ricky well, here's and his the dumb cowboy hat. They're shitty characters, but they're shitty characters played well. They're shitty characters that have an emphasis and a point. So it's not that, you know, it's just a, a negative entity. But when you have Judy, she's a bitch for a reason. You know, she 
it, it wants all this attention and what she ends up doing to Angela and making her jealous and trying to hurt her feelings with Paul, all of that literally was just for attention. She actually has layers to her shittiness outside of she smoked some pot and had sex, like the, uh, the Piss Sisters, or the Shit Sisters, sorry, the Piss Sisters. The Shit Sisters in Sleepaway Camp 2. The villains, I guess you could call them, in Sleepaway Camp, are all actually layered because of their shittiness. I mean, Meg is just relentless. She just doesn't like Angela because she doesn't seem to fit in. She's just being a dick for the sake of being a dick and never, ever lays off her. I mean, Ricky's a bit of an asshole, and I can understand wanting to make his life hell, but they're just overly fucking horrible to Angela. Angela. And by the time you get to return to Sleepaway Camp, though, like, everybody is Meg. Like, they're all like yes. that. Everybody's a dick to everybody else. There's not one person that I care about, and I just want to see them all die. Well, that's what you want in a horror movie. No, it isn't. I want to actually care for somebody. I want to root for somebody in this movie, and I can't root for anyone because they're just pieces of shit, every last one of them. Well, that takes us back to your problems with things like Scream, is that's really that neo-slasher beginning in the late 80s and 90s began that presentation of, well, they just got to be a dick. Everyone's going to be a big dick, and then when they get their head cut off, you feel bad for it. You don't feel bad for them. It doesn't matter, and that's just... And absolutely no emotion. I mean, even with people being horrifying, brutal bullies in sleepaway camp, it's just shocking to see them die. I mean, the children aside, we keep bringing that up. You've got the canoe scene. Uh, when the body's finally turned around and the snake comes out of his mouth, you jump a little bit. It really sets you back. It, it, it's not a comfortable sequence. And then you start transitioning into this easygoing, well, let's just kill people off because we can and everyone's a douchebag. Nothing shocks you anymore. I don't care how violent or how graphic the kill is when absolutely everyone you've shown me is just an unrelentless piece of shit character. You've not even given me something to cling to. I, it just doesn't do anything. And you start off into the 90s with things like Scream, where everything is just ultra beautiful and everyone dresses so perfectly and their hair is wonderful and no one really has problems until murders start happening. Removing any realism, removing any uh, believability, just, I don't care. Kill them all. Who the fuck cares? I just am waiting for the credits and hopefully there's going to be some cool typo negative or something in the soundtrack because it's 1996 and that well, happened. Think about any slasher film from the last 20 years. Hell, even the last thirty years. Think about all the characters in the, like most horror films, especially the ones that you know if they contain teenagers. Do you like any of these people? Do you want to see any of them prevail? Scream withholding because some people like you know Sydney and a couple of the, of the other characters, but most like most of them are these like I like Billy, like bleached, like frosted tipped, like spiky haired dudes. They're like, hey, let's go get some pussy, and they're all like like fucking smash mouth band members for fuck's sakes of course i want to watch them die fuck them i i don't want to root for these fucks there is one thing i can bring up i guess and it's not so much an opposition but at least a point with what you're discussing is eli roth's cabin fever because he took all of those characters and everything that you're bringing up that you hate about how neo slashers and neo horror movies work to to call them neo or or whatever and he used that again to to really i mean i talk about it every now and again but i'm a big fan of cabin fever i don't think I'm a big fan of Eli Roth, but I really feel strongly for that movie, and I think a lot of the reasons are is, like, James DeBello is just a relentless douchebag. He's just, but he's a human douchebag. You took that archetype, you took that character and that presentation of what has been just, just worn out through the late 80s into the 90s, and Roth was able to 
revamp it a little bit and take all these soulless douchebag characters. I mean, all of them. Ryder Strong is a douchebag. All he's trying to do is get laid because he had a crush on this chick since he was 13 the entire time. He doesn't even seem to care that his friends are rotting and dying. He almost got pussy, so yay, good for him. But at the same time, you, you oddly feel sympathy as you watch the movie, perhaps because of the uh, just just over-the-top nature that Roth decided to take that into with just how graphic it, it, it ended up being and just pretty disturbing. I think it's a sickening movie, and I, I love it for those reasons. But there's just something different to the... You can take the same chemicals. You can take all the same structure and make something out of these douchebag, pointless characters that have redeemability. By the end of uh, Cabin Fever, I think, you do end up feeling bad for the situation. Maybe not everyone, but you feel bad for the situation that they've gotten themselves into and what's happened and, and the entire of the story as to where something like uh, Hatchet, I don't give a fuck. I don't care about any of these characters at all. Uh, there's nothing that you've presented to me at all. And, you know, you had pointed out, like, name any characters that you can care about in a modern slasher movie. Outside of uh, Cabin Fever, the only thing that comes to mind is those Jay and Silent Bob stoners from Freddy vs. Jason, that at least they seemed fuck a little them. human. No, fuck them, too. Don't right like their asses? them. You don't like them? No, because they're Shame. Jay and Silent Bob and fuck them. But <laughs> at the same time, like, okay, like, go and look at the House of Wax remake and go to the advertising campaign God of that damn it. film. I hate bringing this up because I kind of like that movie. Well, okay, but the advertising campaign was literally on April 6th. Watch Paris die. You purposely put Paris Hilton in your film because she was a name and people hated her at the time and now you're going to put her in a slasher film don't you want to see her die it's like wait well, yeah but i it's that's not what the joy of a slasher film is a slasher film i like i want heroes and i want villains i understand that like the I, iconography of jason and freddy and how they become somewhat the protagonist of the film but if you go back to at least some of the more earlier Nightmare on the Street and Friday the 13th movies, they're not so much the protagonists. They're still the villains. You want these people to live for them. Do you want to watch Damon die in Friday the 13th Part 5? I think he's like a pretty cool dude. He's like his little brother. Um, you know who always gets me every single time is Wheelchair Dude. I mean, that's one yeah. of the hardest deaths in any of the series. You go this whole movie like, God damn it, he's going to make it, man. This is going to be great. He's going to get laid. He's going to have a good time. And then just one of the worst deaths going down the stairs on the rain, and it goes in slow motion. And that just pulls your heartstrings. I mean, not just because he was going to get laid, but come on, you know what I mean. But that's where we get to the commodification of the slasher genre in the, like, the late 80s again. is like, yeah, like teens watch these movies because they just want to watch people get killed. Well, yeah, I want to watch like murders happen, but I also want to feel bad for the people who are getting murdered. And when you commodify it the way you have, you've just turned this into, don't you want to see your 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 big brother Jason Voorhees just wreck some fucking assholes? Well, no, I I want to watch like heroes and villains. I don't just particularly want to watch a bunch of fucking asshole teens and some. A murderer? He's a fucking murderer. No, I don't want to, like, fucking celebrate him. Yeah, I wear the t-shirt, but he's also still a piece of shit. He's a murderer. You, you don't even want so much heroes and villains sometimes as you just want a story. You want something to happen outside of violence for the sake of violence. I mean, that, that to me, goes into the Friday the 13th remake. That was just almost a senseless display of a big, hulking Jason killing people, which is pretty much what I feel is the equivalent of playing the video game. 
that that's what they made. I mean, the video game didn't exist at that point in time, but that's all that representation is. It's almost soulless. At least the Nightmare on Elm Street remake managed to attempt to uh, give you a proposal of a story and a new idea and tried to take the character of Freddy into a more heinous nature, which, I mean, all of it's relevant to the very first movie. He wasn't just a child killer. He was a diddler, and then he killed him. But bringing that to the table in the remake, I mean, I don't care about the argument with uh, Jackie Earl Haley or who did it better. I'm putting all that I'd besides the, the point. The worst part about the remake, though, is they took Nancy's strength and turned her into this, like, almost like feckless goth chick who has no power, who's just damaged. And I'm like, oh, that's not particularly Nancy. Like, okay, yeah, she got fucked up as a kid in this story, in the context of the, the remake story is, like, I mean, they were the products of abuse, but she never, like, particularly empowers herself until, like, maybe the end a little bit. And Nancy has always been, like, was a very powerful character in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So they just kind of turned them into, like, really sad teens everybody looked wet that movie everybody just looked like they'd been in the rain all goddamn day it was during that era when let's make everything look like david fincher cam let's use heavy dark david fincher cam it's got to be fight club and depressing and it, it it just isn't a look i mean that's something too where you we've been discussing for a little while here is throwing from the late 80s into the 90s even the look of slasher films completely changed you lose the vaseline cam you 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 lose the steady cam there was a sleek uh, sexiness, a dangerous kind of predatory nature to slasher films, especially something like Halloween, how swiftly it moved and how you could almost feel the the speed of Michael Myers and it, or the shape rather, even before it had a appropriated name like Michael Myers, just the shape. You were behind the camera almost and you kind of got excited for it. I mean, you really... You, you knew you were getting into a good slasher film because you could feel that vibe. You could feel that look, and you it was sleek. And even something like Maniac had that grease to it, especially New York, uh, early 80s to mid-80s uh, gore films had just a really divine sparkle, um, kind of like, uh, like a wet highway look, a neon wet highway, like Near Dark, a good example. Uh, and it was sharp, and it was beautiful, and it was its own style. And then you move into the 90s, and everything becomes this just very uh, bland, boring, white spectrum. Everything becomes beige. Everything becomes cream-coated, and there's just nothing to it anymore. There's just no beauty behind the motivation. So a lot of the art, I think, gets lost. And like things like Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3, there just really isn't... There's really an art into it, but it's fucking Sleepaway Camp two and three. I don't, I don't know if there needs to be a high level of art. Well, and you make a good point though, because that's the thing that really has taken me out of the horror—not so much the horror genre as much as it is like just somewhat slasher films and things like that. Is it all became a parody of itself? Even to this day, it's still a parody of itself. I'm going to rip on the film Terrifier. It's a movie I hate, and I know that's horror heresy at this point, but fuck Terrifier, because it gets everything wrong. How with is it horror, horror heresy? I mean, I, I, I will, I guess, blindly go into this, because I only started to attempt to watch this movie because you had such disdain for it, and I couldn't really make it. I couldn't finish the first movie. I don't. I know there's... I know there's one movie, and then there's Terrifier, and there was a movie made before that. I tried to watch Terrifier, and I don't. Yeah, none of that, like all the like the the like the anthology shit. None of that, like Terrifier is its own entity for the most part. Art the Clown has showed up in other products though before that. My problem with Terrifier is it's ma like I'm not trying to specifically call anyone out, 
but because I don't know who the director is, I don't know the like writing and all that shit. But it it seems like somebody who's obsessed with horror films and is obsessed with violence in horror films, and that's what's important to make as hardcore and violent as possible. To um, and possibly, hey, we're gonna you know gonna re- we're gonna take our final girl and we're gonna kill her early in the film because we're gonna like we're gonna fuck with the tropes. Like, yeah, but. A, I kind of need a little bit of a person to root for, and that person you, like, systematically just shot with a gun in the face 12 times and just kind of, like, pissed all over her memory in that way. And all your graphic deaths are just, like, geek show nonsense. It's like, I I don't feel anything for any of this because it's literally just a special effect you're, you're trying to show off. The build is completely off in the film. I mean, it starts out, having kind of a vibe to it. And it feels like, okay, this is going somewhere interesting. And then when we start getting into the actual mayhem that's going on, it just seems to be about, let's see how hardcore we can make this slasher film. And I don't care how fucking hardcore you can make it. I want a story. And you've given me no story. You've given me a clown that seems to have some sort of supernatural powers, I guess. And he's terrorizing a person. Well, he kills that person. Well, now her sister's here. And now he fucking destroys her face and she becomes a killer. And it's just, it doesn't feel like you wrote a coherent story or knew what you were doing. It just seems like it was gore and violence for the sake of gore and violence. And I just, I can't abide by that because it just, it's uninteresting to me. It's like what, it's, it's pretenders in the horror genre. That's what it is. It's people who don't understand horror films to them it's just stimulus it has nothing to do with emotion it's just like let's see how far we can take it watch a gore reel get on youtube and watch gore scenes from movies because that's essentially what that film is it's just a reel of gore effects great what's that do for me emotionally fucking nothing i guess that's not the point anymore you know it's it's what do you want it's a scary clown and it's killing people you don't like clowns people don't like it's a cool design it's It's a great design of a clown but you got no fucking story around that clown i mean that's that's my whole point that's the issue people don't care about or want stories anymore and i'm not trying to consistently bash on marvel movies but we've managed to go a year without a new marvel movie and maybe the cinematic universe will start healing itself because of that but nobody wants a story they either want 45 stories that they don't ever have to stop watching or they just want something just just some sheer absolution some dumb entertainment people don't like clowns clowns are scary clowns killing people clown can't get killed there's your movie we got it that's all you need and like i brought up hatchet earlier but that's one of those things that now is like you know i love slashers i love horror movies i want to make my tribute to them and it's not that i have a problem with that i don't have a problem with anybody's artistic output or whatever they want to do it's fine but it doesn't mean I necessarily enjoy it. And Hatchet, as you feel with Terrifier, I have always found the series uh, a dredge. I found it very hard to get through. I've never seen Victor Crowley. I've I've just had a very hard time sitting through it. And I like Adam Green. I think he's a really competent director. I think he's a very talented and stylistic guy. His best guy. film is Frozen by far. Yeah, I just don't understand why the two sequels were like animated and about singing. It was weird. I never Frozen Two was weird. Um, <clears throat> might not be the same series. Rimshot, but um, bum bum. Yeah, and I, but I think he's a really stylistic guy. I think he has a lot of integrity, and I think he has a great outlook, and I think he does what he does very well. I just have never been able to sit down as as a fan of a lot of hardcore, especially Italian gore. I mean, I think that's more my forte than 
American slashers that I'm really even into, like, Fulci's Contraband. Like, I really like bad fucking Italian gore movies. I like Diamato. It's something I've gotten into since we've we've started doing the video nasties. But even as a teenager, I always had a fixation with guys like Lucio Fulci products, like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Those movies always really affected me and had something to say. And I get where Adam Green comes from with a lot of his visions and a lot of what he has put into the Hatchet series. But for me, it's just like... Oh, it's like a, a a kill reel from all the Friday the Thirteenth movies, like what you're going into and bringing up. That it, it gets monotonous to an extent because all the character archetypes are exactly what you expect. Um, it, it and it it even has some influence from things like Sleepaway Camp two and three with its just nonstop rimshot humor. It just doesn't really. It's very relentless, and that's that's fine. I'm not trying to overly complain because again, I like Adam Green and I know these are really celebrated movies, especially. Now in the horror community, as long as you don't rip them off, don't download them. Do not download an Adam Green movie. <laughs> You're gonna, he's not going to sleep that night if, you fucking, if he sees one more person downloaded fucking Hatchet 4. Interesting you brought up Hatchet. I don't dislike the first Hatchet film. I think the first Hatchet film has a lot of ingenuity to it and it has a lot of fun yeah, to be definitely. had with it and some, things like that. But it does speak to something like with Terrifier. It seems like you're more concerned with creating a new icon than you are of telling a coherent story or giving a, a like an, an inter interesting plot. It seems like you don't have much to say, but I drew up a character and that's what's important. I drew up a creepy clown and that's the important thing is you've got this character and now we can market this character. I, I don't care about the marketing. I, I care about like, I, I want a, a, co a coherent, interesting film. I don't just care about like, look how cool this motherfucker is. And now I have a t-shirt. Thanks Fright Rags. I mean, that's all the genre is, though. You've got Victor Crowley. What, what, a few years before that? Remember Chrome Skull? I think that went on for two movies. Yeah, same deal with that, too. Uh, Wait to Rest. Yeah, just absolutely no point. Uh, he's got a camera on his shoulder, big old chrome face, kills people, somehow doesn't die. I'm not asking for too much here, and I know you make fun of me a lot, because I do. I usually ask for way too many things. Like, I want to know if Leatherface is a weird, incestual relationship. I need to know his backstory. Sometimes I go off the deep end wanting to know stuff, but when you present a character like Art the Clown or something like... I mean, Victor Crowley has a very elaborate black backstory, so we'll have to put that I on I need the side rules burner. is what I fucking need. That's what I need within your film, is some sort of rules of what is going on. And How Terrifier many brothers does this fucking no Asian rules. guy have? I just need to know that when it comes to Hatchet, but... Well, I mean, Terrifier 2 aside, but something like Laid to Rest. You, what is the what? What is all this? You have all these visuals, but what the fuck is it? You don't have any background to absolutely anything. Like, Victor Crowley, you've given him a story. We understand who he is. Art the Clown, we can put in that same field with Laid to Rest. What are you... Like, you can't die, and you're a demon? What are you? I mean, is it some Stephen King shit? Is it just... Eh, yeah, figure it, it out on your own. It like, a long crazy and death backstory with all this stuff but like madman it took two minutes at the very beginning hey it's a guy who uh killed his family and he was hung and he comes back from the dead or whatever fine that's all i goddamn need what's art the clown he's a killer clown he's real creepy isn't he okay but what the fuck is he what, what, what is he like from a d damned circus what Eh, that's not point. There's no point in that, and there's no reason to understand why he's killing. He just kills, and don't you like it? I cut a chicken half with a hacksaw. Isn't that brutal? I guess. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, it's a clown. People don't like clowns. It's a clown killing people. Look, here's the movie. This that's that's what your representation is. 
And I mean, and that's not all modern horror. That's not all modern slashers. There are a lot of things with integrity, especially in the indie scene, if you hunt and look for them. But I think in general, what we're trying to discuss here is more or less the big budget things, the things that are really pushed on your throat. Not Midsummer, not Hereditary, because most like great horror films now are like art house horror films. And even something like The Void. Like that story is pretty incomprehensible, but we understand that it's some sort of Lovecraftian thing about another dimension, monsters. Good enough. I I think it's even more clearly laid out than that. This doctor has been, he's a cult member, and they figured out some cult stuff, and it opens up a gate for their deity to come through. That's it, you know, evil cult. Yeah, but I don't need to know every little thing that they're doing and why they're doing it. That's not what I'm saying, but just fucking something. Something to tell me what the fuck's going on, not just like killer clown, hacksaw done. Didn't you enjoy it? Not really. I was kind of bored the entire movie, and then you just kind of like try to brutalize me through a, a good portion of it because I don't think you understand horror films and how they work. Which tying this all back into the original subject matter is pretty much how you feel at the end of Sleepaway Camp Three, Teenage Wasteland. It 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 really ties it back into that because all the things that we have gone on a tangent about here are. Uh, pretty much the faults of that movie bad writing and return to the sleepaway camp same deal same basic thing it's just like all right stuff happened the end i guess and i i really feel it's not too much to ask for but you've brought this up a lot that uh exploitation is art now as to where art was exploitation and it's just turned back and forth over the years but now your masterpiece films like midsummer that's exploitation it's that's an exploitation film Hereditary yeah, and, is but exploitation. It's exploitation that's super thoughtful. And I'm fine with that. That's what I want. I want some thought into it. It doesn't have to be a multi-million dollar pretty fucking picture with a great cinematographer either. It just he put thought into it. You could have made Midsummer on a fucking like four hundred thousand dollar budget and it would essentially been the same fucking movie. Well that's my point. You say exploitation that's thoughtful, but I mean I think that almost defines the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I to me I'll, I'll bring up and I'll regurgitate the statement a thousand times. I think it's perfect. I think it's one of the most perfect movies ever made, yet alone horror. I mean in general, like with Citizen Kane, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is fucking near perfect to me. And it's mostly because it's thoughtful. It's the amount that was put into the technique that drives the fear. And uh, historically on old episodes of Death by DVD, you and I would get into arguments because I've always wanted to know a little bit more of the Sawyer clan and whatnot. And, you know, you've got comic books and all sorts of trash that is a bit too much more. And, hey, now we've got that Leatherface movie that I wish was never fucking made that has a little bit of a backstory. See, this is what happens when you ask for things. They give you them, and they're absolutely terrible. And then you get fucking Leatherface, that abomination of a goddamn film. I don't know what that shit was. I'm just glad Steven Dorff got a paycheck, because I like him, and I hope he's eating well. But um, just the amount of fear that is layered in the Toby Hooper masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is thought, and it is thoughtfulness, and it is the nature of a thoughtful filmmaker to at least provide something for the audience. To quote Arlie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket, at least you look like the type of guy that would fuck a man in the ass and not give them a reach around. That's modern horror. That it's pretty much being fucked in the ass, and there's absolutely no pleasure. Well, aren't you getting off on all this senseless violence? We made everyone a dildo so we could just kill them. Isn't that great? No, not at all. I don't I don't feel good about this. Now I just feel like I need to go watch something else. And even something that is a, a masterful display of violence like hmm, 
like Inferno or like let's let's use the hanging scene from Suspiria. Just a really gratuitous, horrible, in your face. Just I mean, when the rope pops and all the glass hits, and then the color and the pounding soundtrack. It's incredibly, incredibly effective, but it's fucking thoughtful. That the whole design for that scene was made to invoke multiple emotions. I mean, you're just affected by the loss of life, by how beautiful the actual sequence is, the fact that you're almost feeling pleasure from watching somebody die just because it's such a beautiful sequence. Not because they're dying, but because of how Argento presented the art to you. Being thoughtful isn't that fucking hard. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Who am I? What am I rambling about? I don't know anything. I guess it is because we don't get it. There is no thoughtful cinema anymore. I mean, there are. You've got fucking Midsummer and The Lighthouse and a lot of artistic stuff that's out there, but there's, I wouldn't say enough. Us? It's just, I'll go with us. Yeah, Jordan Peele's films. You've, but there's just not enough of this. There's not enough mainstream anymore, and it's not. You always get the argument from filmmakers and independent filmmakers that people don't want to see it, but I think they do. It's just... Where do you show it? Where do you show people that have an interest anymore? All people want to see is absolute brutality. Nobody cares about the story. I guess it summed up pretty well in Sleepaway Camp 3 when uh, they're talking about what kind of movies you like. He said, I like ones with tits and blood. Well, I pretty much that's a statement on the horror genre as it is now. Which, I mean, I, I feel no fault in because I like movies with tits and blood too, but I don't know. Go somewhere with it. Make the tits haunted. You know? Is that too much to ask for? <laughs> uh, that's Mausoleum. I've seen that movie. It doesn't sound bad. I think I'm going to go watch a good movie about America. Rambo 3, maybe. The ashtray full and the bottle empty? I'd say it is. We'll be back next week. Maybe. I don't know. We might go get lost in the woods like Kane Brown behind his house. On the next episode of Death by DVD. Alexander Nash turns to taking caffeine pills as a result of the pressure with being a new father and his singing group, Hot Sunday. Ignoring Hollywood Hank's warning that the pills can be addictive, it all goes south when Nash has a breakdown and Hank has to save the day. What will happen? Find out next week on Death by DVD. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.